Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. From the epistle of Paul to the Romans, in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. St. Benedict, at the end of his rule for monasteries, writes of the good zeal which monks ought to have. In fact, this last week, an email went out to the parish describing this rule. He writes, just as there is an evil zeal of bitterness which separates from God and leads to hell, so there is a good zeal which separates from vices and leads to God and to life eternal. Benedict's counsel is that the monk should prefer the honor of a brother to the honor which they might gain for themselves. They should tolerate the infirmities of others and yield in obedience to those who would make demands upon them. They should do not what is convenient to themselves, but what is convenient for others. The monk is to be, and I quote here, vigilant in charity, always awake to charity, always looking for the opportunity for charity. Why? Well, it's simple. So that the monk prefers nothing above Jesus Christ. Benedict's great wisdom is this. He understands that there is goodness in zeal. And by that, we can mean simply great energy and enthusiasm in pursuit of an object. But that this goodness of zeal depends precisely upon that object. If we are zealous for God and zealous for our neighbor, we will separate from vices and be led directly into the very life of God. But if we have a zeal for ourselves or for our ideologies or for our own comfort or for our own honor and status, what is built up is not love, but pride. We exalt ourselves, our things, and our ideas above Christ. Indeed, this is the most dangerous of sins because it is a pride that leads us directly away from God. It is, in fact, the devil's sin. Now, why does Benedict say all this? He says it because he knows that those joining the monastery will have zeal. That's a given. I don't think people join monasteries without having some amount of zeal. People hardly join a parish church today without having some manner of zeal. But he also knows that that zeal can be very, very, very pernicious. And so he draws directly upon the words of Holy Scripture. Paul writes to the Romans in the section we read today from the letter to the Romans, outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal, but fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. I took a stab at a, a, a translation of my own of this text, uh, and so you'll have to bear with me through my, uh, through my rumblings, but uh, I dusted off my Greek and decided to go for it, and I came up with something like this. Lead the way in showing honor. Do not hesitate to be zealous. Boil over with the Spirit and serve the Lord as a slave. Paul would remind the Corinthian church 
In another letter, love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Why is it that Paul or Benedict or any of the saints speak in this way? Quite simply, it is because of the example and word of Jesus Christ. Consider these two words of Jesus. If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. Or this, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. A simple way of putting this is that the gospel completely upends our ideas about what makes someone great. We think of greatness as rising to the top, becoming a person of influence and power or fame. Even if we think of ourselves as being underlings or peons, we still cannot help but think of the world in terms of power and status. We get deeply concerned about elections and global politics. We get deeply concerned about who the next dean of this college or that will be or who the next president of the university will be or who the next department chair will be. We concern ourselves deeply with public policy. And those things are not wrong. It's not wrong to care about those things. They are not bad in and of themselves. We should hope for the best. We should even work for the best. But more than this, and perhaps more dangerously, we become obsessed with our own position, our own advancement, how others honor and revere us, how others think about us. But what we should say is that all of these must be measured according to the standard of the cross and the Savior of the world who hangs upon it. What we see in the cross is not an exercise of political will or earthly power or a desire for respectability, but an exercise of heavenly power and heavenly service, which from the world's perspective looks like failure, shame, and weakness, but which leads to our salvation. Let me be clear here. The Christian cannot look to the cross and to Jesus upon it, as the, letter of the, as the letter to the Hebrews puts it, running with perseverance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes upon Jesus, while at the same time fixing our eyes on old glory, while flocking to a brutal and idolatrous form of civic religion concerned with radical self-interest and the raw exercise of totalitarian power, a power which is actually sought by both parties, not by one and not the other. In other words, a Christianity in which the American flag and the Lord Jesus Christ are interchangeable as objects of our worship might inspire some, but it is not and indeed cannot be biblical Christianity. Biblical Christianity pursues a way of full-on assault against the principalities and powers of this world through a way of vigilant servant love. And the reason for this is simple. The goodness of our zeal is determined by the object of our zeal. And nothing is to be, preser- is to be preferred to Christ, whether Christ himself or Christ in the person of our neighbor. Paul calls upon the church to abhor evil, to hold fast to what is good, to cling to what is good. He calls upon the church to compete in showing honor, to contribute to those in need, to practice radical hospitality. And let me say that just in passing, that 
It doesn't just mean inviting people into your home when it's a mess and you haven't vacuumed in a couple weeks. It, it, it's something much more than that. It means to invite the least likely people to your table. To invite those who have no honor to your table. To invite those who are not honorable as the world sees it. To eat with you. To invite those who cannot possibly pay, repay that kindness. Why? For the purpose of radically pursuing the gaining of a brother or a sister. Is this not what Jesus is getting at today in Matthew chapter 18? Look at this section more closely when you get a chance. The one with a grievance against his brother is not to look for his own vindication, either of his position or status or actions, but to restore the one who has gone astray, to gain a brother or a sister, not by having his own way, but by consciously sacrificing the honor that, we could very, that he could very well and easily take for himself. We very often take delight in denouncing our neighbor, delight in publicly making all manner of statements against our neighbor. Not because we want them to be restored, but because we want to look good in the eyes of others. There's a wonderful tradition in Christian moral thought that goes something like this, that every human person is entitled to their good name. Even if you know for sure that a friend has done something dishonorable, there are some matters about which we should remain entirely silent unless called upon to give testimony in law. There is something holy about a neighbor's good reputation, and Jesus desires that reputations not be tarnished. Because you know what happens when someone's reputation is tarnished. What happens? They're brought further from repentance, not closer to it. They're given to despair. Jesus is making a very clear statement here to the church to say, do not throw people aside so easily. And even when at the end they are to become, as to you, a tax collector and a sinner, they are those who are without honor but are nonetheless to receive that hospitality. What Paul is talking about when he says, let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good, love one another with brotherly affection, outdo one another in showing honor, do not be slothful in zeal, be fervent in spirit, serve the Lord, is a way of being zealous for God's mission in the world, being zealous for love of God and love of neighbor, truly hating a way of self-interest and self-aggrandizement. Now, I want to be clear, I'm not advocating that you vote for one candidate or another. I've actually been quite public about that. I say, I will never tell you who to vote for, and I will never tell you who I'm voting for. Precisely because I'm actually not voting. <laughs> it's sort of a weird thing, and I'll tell you more about it if you want. I'm saying this. Look out. That you do not gain the whole world and forfeit your soul. I'm saying be careful that you not let your identity as a child of God get absorbed into your identity as a member of this nation or that, of this race or that, or even this gender or that, this party or that, this group or that. We've seen in the last few weeks just how morally and spiritually destructive 
this clinging to power is. Some of you even went to the university that I'm talking about. This power corrupts. And as this year drags on, we are given more and more opportunities to spurn the gospel for the idolatry of the self. More and more opportunities to become not only more self-interested and full of pride, but to even delude ourselves into thinking that our self-serving actions are actually the outworking of Christian love. I mean, who here doesn't love to do that? You undertake an action that you think, oh, this is going to be great, and people are going to think better of me because I've done it, and then they'll all love me because I've done it. It's rather difficult to know how to do that or to know what righteousness looks like. And that's the problem that I want to put in front of you today. That it is this which requires discernment and wisdom to know the right way forward. To know what actions and words are truly acts of love and which ones are not. And the first thing that I want to say today is that the Christian pursues such wisdom through the study of Holy Scripture. Many through the centuries have been stolen away from, God, from ways of godliness by a verse taken out of context or by the simple suggestion, did God really say? The Christian must know the Scriptures inside and out to the point where the language of Scripture becomes our language. To the point where we are not just biblically literate, but biblically articulate. Not only reading Scripture, but speaking in the words of Scripture. The way of wisdom according to Scripture is not only to fear the Lord, but to meditate on His Word, to feast upon the delights of divine revelation, so that our hearts may desire what they ought to desire, so that our minds would think as they ought to think, so that we would know what is beautiful and know what is good. This morning we read from Psalm 119, and in case you didn't know, uh, the 119th Psalm is actually a Hebrew acrostic. It's kind of an alphabet of righteousness, as Oliver O'Donnell, I think, once put it. Listen to those words we said this morning. Teach me, O Lord, the way of your statutes, and I shall keep it to the end. Give me understanding, and I shall keep your law. Indeed, I shall keep it with my whole heart. Make me go in the path of your commandments, for therein is my desire." Incline my heart to your testimonies and not to covetous desires. Oh, turn away my eyes, lest they behold vanity, and revive me in your ways. What Jesus is talking about today in Matthew 18 is not just some sort of well-crafted way to avoid conflict. He's talking about a way in which we can embody a way of spurning vanity and loving our neighbor at the same time. Paul is talking about a way of spurning vanity and loving our enemy at the same time. Do you not see what he says? Pray for those who persecute you. Give your enemy food to eat and, and drink to drink. I mean, have you ever prayed for your enemies? I hope you have. It can be a miserable thing to have to do. For several years, I had to pray for someone who was suing me for everything that I had. I had to pray for, for one who was suing our parish, wanted to take away our historic property, wanted to take away all the money, wanted to deprive me of my livelihood, and I would go into morning prayer and I would know what I had to pray for in the intercessions. It was miserable. I hated it. I did not like it at all. It was miserable. 
And sometimes I just didn't do it. I just refused. I'd say, no, I'm not doing that today. I can't do that today. But it was always come back. You must, you must, you must, you must, you must. Why? Because the opportunity for that whole conflict to simply become an occasion of my own vanity was too darn high. And so I would pray, often through gritted teeth, often resentful, but I'm the better for it today. In fact, I'm not even sure that Christ Church would exist if that whole affair hadn't happened. It might exist, but I don't know. I don't know. God was working is the point. God was working in the midst of this terrible conflict to bring about great good. So we must take up Holy Scripture. And the best suggestion that I can give you is to take up the daily office, to read the Scriptures according to that well-orchestrated plan. If you've not prayed the daily office, I want to encourage you to it. Those of you who do pray the daily office can testify that it will absolutely change your life. It's a wonderful thing. Absolutely wonderful thing. The second thing that needs to be said this morning is that if we are to exhibit the good zeal of which Benedict speaks, the showing of honor of which St. Paul speaks, the desire for reconciliation of which Jesus speaks, then we must live lives of prayer. No, not ad hoc, shoot from the hip lives of prayer, like, oh Lord, I'm stuck in traffic, please help me to get out of this traffic. Not, oh Lord, I have a test coming up and it would be helpful if I could get an A. Not the kind of prayers that children play, bless so-and-so and so-and-so and so-and-so and so-and-so. Those are not bad prayers. I want you to hear that. But a life. A life. A life in the interior which takes priority over the active life. A way in which contemplation rules the life of action. We live in a society today which praises action and denounces prayer, which praises lives that are activists and denounces contemplation. This means not only becoming less busy and having more time for prayer, it means prioritizing the life of prayer over every other thing. Letting our lives be disciplined according to a particular rule. We cannot become a people ruled by the love of God and love of neighbor if we are unwilling to love God in the most basic way that he commands, through a life of worship and prayer and intercession. We cannot even love our neighbor if we think of ourselves as being the very salvation of our neighbor. No, we must pray for our neighbors, especially those most distressing to us, our enemies. Do you want to love your enemy? Begin in the most difficult way possible. Begin with prayer. Pray for that enemy daily. And here's what I'll tell you. You'll find that your heart is changed towards your enemy. Deeply changed. You'll begin to willingly pray for blessing and not cursing, you'll find that your desire for vengeance drops. 
Perhaps the most distressing part of this, if I can venture out a little bit, is that we very often become enemies even to ourselves. The very thing we want to do, we find we can't do. The very thing that we desire most seems to be elusive to us. We become divided people. And it's terrible. It's terrible. And sometimes, you know, that old adage, you're your own worst enemy applies very, very, very much to us. How to do this? Sometimes praying for your enemy means praying for yourself. It means beginning with supplication for your deep and abiding holy desires to be fulfilled by the Lord's grace. To pray for hard hearts to be softened. To pray for new life to take root. To pray that you might become a saint. This requires looking to yourself as the root of your problems and not someone else. It requires desiring to fix yourself before you fix someone else. It requires desiring to take that giant plank out of your eye before you pluck that little tiny speck from another's. But it all begins in prayer. G.K. Chesterton once responded to a newspaper uh, request or article that said, what is wrong with the world? He wrote in and said, dear sir, I am respectfully G.K. Chesterton. Every Christian ought to have that idea that at the center of all the world's disruption and problems and sin and errors is a sinner of whom I am chief. Let us begin in the world of contemplation. Let us begin in offering our deep and holy desires before God that he might fill them by his grace. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.